Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Today we have Dr. Megan Miller on the call. Megan, hi, are you there? Hello, I'm here. Thanks, Amanda. Right on. Thanks for joining us. Can you start us off by giving an introduction of yourself? Sure. So my name is Megan Miller, and I had the pleasure of meeting you, Amanda, when we first started working on the dissemination of behavior analysis special interest group many years ago now, it seems like. I am a BCBAD, and I live in St. Pete, but I wear many different hats working for different companies, mostly in a training and consultation role at this point. Training and consultation role. I can never, um, people ask me, where does Megan live? And I'm like, hmm, you do quite a lot of traveling. And um, <laughs> I think that's part, you know, partly connected to one of the topics I thought we could talk about today. Um, of course, we have so many things we could talk about. Um, I think in the 10 years that we've known each other, we've talked about a good amount of things. But one of the roles and the hats that you wear is that of mother, um, in addition to being a behavior analyst and a world traveler. Um, so I wanted to ask kind of your perspectives on what it's been like or your experiences to be a working mom and how that's influenced or impacted your career, if if at all. Sure. So it's kind of an interesting topic to discuss. I never thought when I had my son, Taylor, I was 33, so just throw my age out there. And when I first graduated from undergraduate in my early 20s, I thought I would, you know, get married, start a family, and just be like a stay-at-home mom, essentially. (laughs) That was before I had a career or anything. By the time I had Taylor, I had my PhD. I was well-established in my career. So I knew I was going to take some time off of one of my jobs and stay at home with him a bit, but I also knew I wanted to be with my families that I was working with and the business that I had started, and I wouldn't really get to take all the time off and be a stay-at-home mom. But also by the time I was 33, I didn't – that wasn't as appealing to me either. Not saying there's anything wrong with it, just for me personally, there wasn't – it just wasn't as motivating. And I was – had a plan. I was ready to go with it. I didn't really talk to my husband about it a whole lot because I've always just done my life, (laughs) Uh, whether it was go back to school to get my PhD or take on whatever jobs I want to take. We've never had that type of relationship where we discuss those things. When he took his different jobs or did his different things, he, he did them as well. So I made my plans and had everything set up. I set up our nannies, babysitters, those types of things, figured all of that out with zero input from my husband or really anyone else. But I figured as long as I was taking care of everything, who was anyone to complain about that? And so all the responsibility just, you know, I just took that on myself because that's how I've been used to getting things done. So the quite surprising thing to me was how people reacted to that. So People close to me mostly, even though I had everything planned out, it wasn't an inconvenience to them or anything like that, were very shocked that I was not staying at home with my son more. And 
that I was still going to be working so much and traveling so much, even though, again, I had everything set up. So that's been one of the hardest parts for me is I personally didn't have any personal difficulties. I've heard a lot of women talk about the guilt that they felt with leaving their children. I haven't felt that because I personally am a better mom and more focused and present when I'm doing a bunch of different things. The time I have with my son is quality time to have, and I'm not getting distracted by a million other things. Whereas if I was around him all the time, I probably wouldn't focus on him as much. So that was really shocking to me that even though I had made my personal decisions and I was comfortable with the decisions I made, that society was not very accepting of it. Even though we're sold on, you know, the story nowadays that women can do, can do it all. <laughs> it was clear when I tried to do it all that that was not the case. And one of the most surprising things that happens pretty much every time I go to a conference or I travel and I tell people I have a child, the first question is, well, where is he? And I haven't had the chance yet to do this because it actually hasn't happened since I thought of it. But I really want to start telling people, oh, my gosh, I don't know. What happened? I'm so, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm just act shocked by it because there's just this like assumption. I don't know. It's just the weirdest question. Like I would just leave without <laughs> taking care of that. Um, but nobody ever asked my husband that, you know, he travels for work. He was in the military so that when we got married, he could have been deployed for like six months at a time and nobody batted an eye at that. But I go away for like a week and people just think that's the craziest thing ever. So that's been kind of interesting for me um, that I've figured out my system and my routine, but other people don't seem to be very accepting of that. Well, it kind of seems like, and I'm not a parent, but it, it, it often seems like kind of no matter what you do, um, people are going to have uh, an opinion about it. So it sounds, I think, part of it really great that you have been able to find something that works for you and to create a plan um, I also find it really interesting that that's what you do in your whole life, right? You you definitely, like, take charge and create plans and execute them and measure them and define them. Um, have you found any part of the planning process difficult um, in regards to, um, you know, taking care of those things or thinking of those things that you kind of were um, alluding to before? The hardest? part has been uh, the child care, which is, you know, pretty much every parent has that difficulty, whether they're staying in an area or traveling. I, well, there was one point in the past couple of years where we were living in two different cities. So my husband was transferred for work, but I was still in Panama City teaching class at FSU. So I was driving back and forth between Panama City and St. Pete. So I had babysitters in both areas, depending on where I was at the time, and, like, coordinating all of that was a lot of fun. I, but the hardest part is if the child care falls through. So if, you know, I have something set up and I have a trip and then the person can't babysit, or right now, Taylor, my son, he goes to daycare all day, and it works out great if I'm traveling because he's at daycare and then Blake, my husband, picks him up. But every once in a while, Blake will have to travel for work and they don't tell them until last minute. So there's a couple of times where I already have plans, flights, trainings booked, and I'm not going to be here, and then he finds out he has to travel too, and figuring out, okay, who's going to stay overnight <laughs> with Taylor now? But fortunately, my parents live an hour south of here, and most most of the time they've been able to 
take on, you know, step in and take on those days when that happens. So that's been really supportive. Not everyone could do that if they, you know, we didn't have that support in place. So that's been the most difficult thing I would say. Um, and it, for me, just as like a personal thing, even though I'm a behavior analyst and I know we're all bound by the contingencies in the environment, but there's not really much appreciation given for it. So I spend a lot of time and effort on coordinating all of those things. And the people involved don't typically say, wow, you're doing such a great job. You know, thanks for taking care of all of that. It's more like complaining, you know, why am I traveling sometimes or why didn't I schedule this or why didn't I do that? So it's like it's never enough, basically. Um, but I have my social media um, friends who are always very supportive. So that makes up for it, I guess. <laughs> Creating that network. So we talked about some of the things that are, you know, challenging, but you also really reference things that make it possible, right? So um, having having a career that, that you know, maybe is, I would say that it's very demanding, but also in some ways flexible at times, but not when you have your plane tickets and booked and your, your <laughs> training's ready to go. Um, but, like, yeah, like you mentioned, you know, I, I, again, not a parent, but on the periphery, I remember we were at, the Autism Law Summit last year, and Lori and Dan Unum, uh, who are, you know, fantastic champions for our, for our field and for the, all the children out there, but they have their own children, and they got a call being like, oh, Monday, you know, it's a holiday, and they're like, what do you mean it's a holiday, and they're like, yeah, the school's closed, and they're like, you mean our school, like our center is closed that they run, and they're like, yes, and they're like, oh my goodness, who's going to take care of our, of our children, um, and it was just a it was an interesting thing because I see the two of them and I think powerhouse and um, it's important to remember that they're parents too. Right. And so it's, I see some people and I don't, I don't think of their personal lives. Um, but I feel like you've mentioned and, and definitely I've seen this happen where people are asking the women, the, the mothers, you know, where's your child? Oh my gosh, I don't know. Where is he? Did I leave him upstairs? Is he on the escalator again? <laughs> oh gosh. Oh, there he is on the chandelier. I love that idea. It might be fun to, to film that, get some social media panic uh, <laughs> views there. But, um, you know, but in that situation, why do you, like, why do you think that is? Or how do you think, what do you think we can do to shift that sort of societal impression about mothers in comparison to fathers? I'm hoping it's it's partially just a matter of generations and different experiences. So I I like that was a really interesting thing to me. I never growing up felt like we were necessarily obviously conditioned to certain roles or anything like that for our generation. But I look back and I think about certain things that it, now it's like, oh my gosh, yes, all of those Disney princess movies. <laughs> I was pretty much brainwashed to think I needed to just find a man and then I'd be happy and have a family. Um, that's a different, that's a whole different discussion. But I think, you know, now that there are these discussions happening and like the next sets of generations of young women, if we can continue to foster and facilitate that conversation and really helping them be more independent and not, even I have a friend who uh, I met through another behavior analyst that is a younger generation. She's in her mid twenties and she's just happy enough to, you know, travel the world and be independent, doesn't care anything about finding a man or starting a family or any of those types of things. That was really rare. Even, you know, we're only like 10 years apart in age, but it was only, it was very rare. And none of my friends would have said that um, when we were in college or just out of college. So I think, 
hopefully as we start to see the, the environment around us changing, we'll, we'll see that. And I think having people who aren't afraid to stand up and kind of call those things out, which is obviously me, I, it was funny at um, ABAI, I think last year, I was talking to a couple of prominent BCBA in the field who, who are men, and they asked me about my son or something like that, and I made like a flippant comment to them because they were shocked that I was there, <laughs> the young child, and I was like, you will never understand. Like, I know you all have children, and you're great fathers, but you, no one would have ever asked you where your kids were, and your careers were not paused. Your publications were not put on hold. You were not expected to stay at home with the children when they were born, but I am, even though I'm actively not trying, like, I'm, I'm trying to work against that, and I'm still expected to do it. And, and I wasn't afraid to just point that out, you know, and I think that that's really important as well, that we aren't afraid to discuss it and talk about it and help support other young women and model for them what you can do. I think that we often get stuck in whatever expectations are out there from other people. And for Taylor especially, you know, there basically I haven't let – having a child stop me from any of my goals. And I think part of it is I was a little bit older when I had him, so I already knew what my goals were. But whatever those goals were, I didn't put them on hold. And that was my personal decision. Some people's goals change or they do pause them, and, and that's their plan to come back to them. But my personal decision was I, whatever goals I had are staying here, and I'll just figure out new supports to, to get there. And I wasn't afraid to reach out to people and ask, like, okay, well, I need to go do present at this conference. Can you babysit? Or can you meet me at the conference and watch Taylor? I'm bringing him with me. And even as much as I would get, you know, weird remarks and comments about that, it, I just didn't let it stop me. And I don't know that everyone has that kind of attitude about it, but hopefully the more that people can just be more flexible and accepting of these different choices, then we'll see that change. Well, you you really resonated. The point that you made with me uh, resonated where we're a product of our environment, of course, and we think about our history at the time, not realizing what we were conditioned or potentially encouraged to become or to do or believe or think or behave. Um, my father was in the Army. I grew up as an Army brat, and I've had no problem picking up and moving a bunch of times and going into new buildings and places and schools and situations, and so I think oh, maybe that's easier for me, you know, than some people because of my history. But at the time, it was just my life, right? You didn't, you didn't know where it was leading, per se. Um, and you also talked about, um, in regards to the gentleman that you were speaking with at ABAI, it's a matter of, of their histories, too. So very caring fathers, very nice people. I know we've talked about um, that experience. But it was a perspective that maybe hadn't occurred to them. And so I think by having some of these conversations, it's just thought-provoking in that way. But I have another question um, in regards to the fathers out there, um, and I know you're a mother, but do you see a difference in things like paternity leave and the amount of time that fathers are given from work? Are there things that are working against fathers that, that maybe mothers have the advantage of, anything you can think of in that direction? Specific to behavior analysis, I honestly don't because unfortunately a lot of the companies and in my the business that I had I no longer have but I still work for navigation behavioral consulting 
we couldn't, like we were a small business. I had no background in running a business or anything like that. So we weren't set up yet to even offer maternity leave or anything like that. When we did have these CBAs who became pregnant, we figured out solutions to support them so they were still receiving pay and, and the support that they needed um, when they were out for maternity leave. But And we didn't have any men working for us. So, you know, we would have done the same thing for a, a father as well if that had come up. But we didn't – we weren't in a position because we were such a small business financially to even offer any sort of paid maternity leave. And even at – I worked at – when I was um, – my, one of my full-time jobs when I was pregnant was working for Florida State and doing research. And even at like a state university, you can take up to six months off, but it's all unpaid leave. So in the United States in general, maternity or paternity leave is horrible. <laughs> and, but it's really bad. I don't know that there's, I don't have any data to support this, but I would imagine given the landscape of our field right now that it's even worse within our field because so, there's so many small businesses that don't even offer benefits yet like paid time off or 401ks or things like that and they're not large enough that they have to comply with you know the the different laws but even if they did the laws in place I think it's what like there's no nothing mandating paid leave of any sort and the unpaid leave, I think if they fall under the federal laws, they have to, like, hold the position, but it's only for a few months. It's not anything, you know, drastic. So I, I would imagine, I know when my brother had, when I've had friends, like my brother, like for my husband, there are companies that were bigger corporations, they did have paternity leave, but it was only like a week or two. Um, so when you look at the companies that do offer leave for children being born, there is a difference between the mom, or at least from what I've seen, the mothers and the fathers tend, you know, mothers tend to get more time off than the fathers do. But that's just an issue at large in our country right now uh, that needs to be addressed. If you look at what, like, I worked for a family in Serbia, and they could take up to five years off they weren't it wasn't all paid I think the first year or two was paid but they could take five years off of their job and I don't know if that was federal or just this particular person's job but she was guaranteed that she could still have her job whenever she would come back after those five years and like other countries have a year or two so we're just really not doing well in that area in our country right now yeah I think the better question would have been you know how's the U.S. doing <laughs> in comparison? <laughs> and, I mean, I, we kind of know the answer there. But I also wonder if it's tougher in our field because of our own internal drive of, like, we're helping others, we need to get back to work, that that sort of sometimes can can drive us and not give us the – we don't have that same – I don't have that same internal covert behavior of, like, hey, it's okay to slow down. Take time for yourself. Go ahead. Get a – Get a manicure. No, I don't. I don't hear those thoughts. So, yeah. how, how do you, um, how do you kind of? What, what are some ways that help you manage going in so many different directions with motherhood and working, but just in general, maybe even like literally different directions. You're traveling all the time. So I would say that. Again, I'm just going to keep referencing the fact that I was a little bit older, but hopefully younger people can learn from my mistakes. So I had already kind of worked out some systems because I'd gone through what seems to be an inevitable 
thing that happens for behavior analysts where you work yourself to death and then you're like, oh man, something has to change here. So before I even, you know, had Taylor, I probably in my late twenties kind of went through that phase and I had already, and then, you know, went through the doc program at Ohio state and I saw how well my advisor, um, Dr. Helen Malone, she was able to juggle everything. She had three kids. Uh, she was obviously working full-time, her husband worked full-time, and they coordinated everything as a team, and she still had very strict rules, like, I will not respond to things after 5 p.m., um, you know, certain things about the weekend, like, she had just set rules of, like, this is how, you know, life is, and when I first encountered that, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy, like, this is not a field where you can do that, you know, <laughs> Like, why would anybody do that? You're a professor. You're not allowed to do that. Um, because all of the models I'd ever had of a professor were, like, again, that working to the bone, you know, never stop and that kind of thing. But it was amazing to see, like, she was still very productive, very supportive. All of her students accomplished a lot. And she was able to balance and have that self-care and time with her family. So that was a good model for me. And, again, just my own history with having to figure out a lot of those pieces before I ever even got pregnant. So I would say, like, from a, an advice standpoint, whether you're just getting started in the field or you've been in the field for a while, whether you have kids or you don't have kids, for me and for the people I've seen that do it well, the thing that works the best is really, again, thinking about what your ideal day or week or month or whatever would look like, and you set rules for yourself and, and you don't stray from those. So mine was a shaping process. I had to actually start with literally before I, again, I had Taylor or anything, scheduling in time. I, like Blake, my husband would get 30 minutes <laughs> at night. I had scheduled him in, you know, to talk or whatever. And then I was working on paperwork until like 11 o'clock at night. And then that slowly transitioned to where now I only work from about eight in the morning until five in the afternoon. And then the rest of the night is time with family. And then on the weekends I take off, even though that was weird at first. But it, I just set rules for myself, and I had to shape it and gradually get there. But that's, you know, and having models that, you know, can help you see that it's possible is also really important, I think. I think that's really great advice. So it's nice to give advice and also to be a model. And there are a lot of different paths for people. So I really appreciate how you talked about your personal journey, you know, your personal decisions. And um, really, that's going to be up to everybody. But it's really, I think, important to have these conversations and to talk about those experiences. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Um, but before I let you go, um, I want to give you an opportunity to tell everybody kind of what you're up to and all the different directions you're going in and if there's anything that you want to, um, any last parting words for our listeners. Well, thank you, Amanda. It's been a pleasure being on the podcast, and I'm really excited that you're doing this. It's a great asset to our field and it's been fun hearing all the different people that you've been interviewing. The biggest kind of passion project that I have right now is the Do Better movement. I know that you're in the Facebook group for it. We've just been trying to have active conversations going and promoting professional development and free access to professional development activities. So that's the thing that motivates me the most right now and that I allocate most of my time towards. I um, I'm really excited because this year and then hopefully following years, we'll have each month different people presenting on different topics, whereas last year it was all just me. <laughs> um, and I do other things, like I do trainings for the PEAK system, and I do international trainings on 
behavior analysis and autism and invited presentations at conferences and things like that. My other big passion thing right now is the dissemination piece where I travel mostly with Ryan of the Daily BA and he helps capture the video footage and we go to different countries and try to just connect with the local culture there and meet the local behavior analysts and sometimes BCBAs or BCABAs if, if they're there and the families and just really get a better feel for what different places are experiencing and how we could potentially help them get access to more resources or provide and volunteer our time in that area as well. So that's another thing. It's not something I, you know, pull people in on right now, but it's just been my, one of the ways to kind of give back because I don't, I'm not organized enough to start like a nonprofit or anything right now, but I can do some volunteer activities and help support the, in the different communities that we've been going to. So that's been really cool. Volunteering, I think, is a great way to find out what a community needs and to show how you can help that community. Um, when I first got to Hawaii, I volunteered with the Hawaiian Monksville Foundation, and at one point that led us to a behind-the-scenes tour with Julie Vargas um, because it was founded by Karen Pryor, um, and B.F. Skinner had been there. And it was like, what? And it was really old because <laughs> I just wanted to, like, help out with monk seals and things like that. Right. Um, but you never know where those connections will go. And and I think to think of the world as, as a small place can be a beautiful thing, right? Um, especially since the girl here out in the middle of the ocean. So I appreciate you <laughs> and your time, everything you're doing, and to remember the places that are remote locations in the world and to help out. So, Megan, again, thank you so much for joining today's podcast. Thank you again for having me. And for anyone who would like to learn more about applied behavior analysis, visit www.behaviorbabe.com.